0: Welcome to the Maris Review. I am here talking to my friend, Jason Green, who is a music writer and the author of Once More, We Saw Stars. And I'm so glad we get to do this. We had recorded about a year ago when his book first came out and had some technical difficulties. Um, So I'm just so happy to be able to talk to you again.
1: It's so good we got to do this. Um, if this talk isn't as good as the first one, you can just tell people that they should have imagined how just brilliant our first conversation was. In the it
0: really most, was, it was, though. It was brilliant
1: conversation, you know. That, yeah. Lost to history. It's always a pleasure. Uh, it's an excuse to get to talk again. So for that, yes. I'm grateful.
0: But I do feel like the conversation has to be different now because I'm talking to you a year later.
1: Yeah. Um, my book is uh, just as... The story of my life between the death of my daughter Greta and the birth of my son Harrison. Um, and uh, my my daughter died in 2015 when a brick fell from a windowsill on the eighth story of a building in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. She was sitting on the on the bench with with her her grandmother, my my wife Stacy's mother Susan, and um, two piece, The brick fell and one piece of it hit Susan in the legs and then it struck Greta in the head and Greta never recovered. Um, 48 hours later, we were back home and we had donated her organs and we didn't have a child anymore. Um, it was such a shocking, freakish accident that it became national news. Um, and our daughter's face was in the picture of one of the two New York city tabloids as I left the hospital. Um, and the book basically was began in the crater of that, moment in our lives and uh, written through to the, to the moment when Harrison, our son was born. Um, Stacey got pregnant six months after Greta died. Um, mm. and uh, the book became this very haunted, but haunted, but hopeful exploration of what it was going to be like to have come from trauma and to deliver life to another, another child. Um, mm. I wrote it as an intensely personal reckoning that slowly opened up to be a book. As I kept writing, I realized that, um, I wasn't writing my journal. I think I probably realized that about three months uh, after Greta died, because I had been sort of graphomaniacally writing down every day as a way of coping. Um, And so, yeah, the the book slowly emerged into the world from there. Last year it came out. um, There was no pandemic. Uh, There was no uh, 100,000-plus people dead from the coronavirus. And while grief is always a part of everyone's life, and there's always grief being talked about somewhere while it's always a part of the cultural conversation, what's happened since has changed everything for me about how I think about, I mean, it, it has felt both perverse and sad and sick in a way for my book to be coming back out again in the middle of such mass death. And also it has felt like, um, underlying resonance, like there's so much grief happening. Everyone is a griever now um, on some level. Um, and so to have my my story, Greta's story, Harrison's story come back out again this year has been eerie. Um, yeah, I, I don't know, we're all in our foxholes right now. I haven't done yes. any promotion. I haven't done any, I haven't been out, I haven't talked to anybody who's picked up the book. So I have no, I mean, I have even less sense than your average author of like, what's happening with people with my book right now. But I hope that someone right now would be reading it and finding something comforting in it, given the current circumstances.
0: I, I imagine, and it's such a, a, people, I assume, have to turn to books and other sources because it's so hard to be together and it to is. gather I, and to, it, that, that's heartbreaking.
1: There's so much enforced solitude right Mm now. Um, I have been able to do a couple grief groups online, attend, I should say. I've been able to Mm -hmm. attend a couple of grief groups that have popped up since the pandemic began. There's this guy who has become this ongoing character in my life now. He's a close friend, I would call him now, who we met, my wife and I, after Greta died. He's uh, sort of a leading grief counselor Named David Kessler, um, there's a whole section of the book where we go to one of his grief conferences yes. and sort of dip a toe into the waters of what it's going to feel like to try and heal um, instead of just kind of carry on. And it's messy and uncomfortable and awkward and profound and all these things. And so it's actually a huge section of the book. Yeah. And now he is doing grief groups over Facebook Live. And so he asked me to come talk. And seeing, well, first of all, seeing his face and realizing that there were still people like that in the world was shocking, because I hadn't seen another human face in a while, uh, apart from my wife and son. Uh, And also talking about something profound in the middle of all this. Uh, There are all these people who are on this Facebook group who are normally talking to each other, right? It's a grief group for um, for anyone. It's not child-loss specific or anything. And to see them talking to each other, even just typing messages, and they're saying, I feel so connected to you right now. I mean, it was amazing to see. It was like, everything has gone silent, but it's still happening, right? Grief groups are still happening. People are still comforting each other. They just have to find these new ways of doing it right now. Um, And yeah, I've thought so much about this, Maris. I mean, after Greta died, I had the world holding us in in, in its palm, you know, because everyone knew that she died. Everyone that I knew and everyone I didn't know knew that my daughter had died of these strange circumstances. And there were people in our apartment every minute of every day, to the point where we had to say, okay, we need to be alone because we had so <laughs> much support. Yeah. We had so much support and I've thought about this. Your father, your mother, your grandmother, your brother or sister dies alone because no one can be there. You say goodbye over an iPad and then you sit in your apartment and try to reckon with what that means alone. And it's truly harrowing for me to think about. I just hope that people are braving these sort of strange waters to find each other. Yes. And I do
0: feel in in the book world that having these video chats is is a way to keep connected. And I felt about a year ago, I went to Books or Magic and saw you uh, present your book um, in conversation with Danny Shapiro And just being part of that audience felt like a profound experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember I was worried that I was gonna cry because it was all about me.
1: Right, but you know.
0: And and you talk about this quite a bit, how grief can make the people you're talking to so more self-centered. Then perhaps I, they should be.
1: I don't know that I, I you know, I, it's funny that you say that because I I think what I feel most for, any, for anyone in that, in that situation is empathy. I actually felt it even in the moment mm. when someone was looking me in the eyes and just didn't know what to say, I, it, it was impossible for me to comfort them because they were trying to comfort me. That yes. was the way the role was supposed to go. Yes. But I also wanted to say to them, like, because it, it was true, like, look, I don't know what to say to me. I don't know what you should say <laughs> to me. I don't know what anyone should say to me right now, you know, and, and, and I've said this or some version of this before, but I feel like it bears repeating because it, I need to hear it. It doesn't matter what you say to a certain extent, right? You will say something wrong. You'll <laughs> yes. probably say something stupid and you will probably think about it later and wish you hadn't and it, it'll hurt you. But like what matters to the person you're talking to is that you are standing there, right? That's what actually matters to them. I can tell you without fail every single thing someone said to me where I could, I knew when they said it, they were like, oh, because, and you know, they said something they didn't say it the right way or, but it, I, I didn't hold it against any of them because what mattered for the most part was that they were in my apartment door, usually handing me something. They were handing me a casserole they just mm-hmm. made because they knew we needed food or they were just standing there crying because they wanted us to see them, that they were there and that they were also grieving our daughter. Like, and I've also said this before too, but, you're not going to say the right thing. Right? <laughs>
0: no. know. Right? That's also very uh, egotistical, right? Like, what if I had the thing to say to you? Right, that, no, but like, I understand the pressure. It comes
1: from being a good person <laughs> who wants to help somebody, right? I'm a good, I want to help this person, right? But you can tell yourself, right, you know, remove that pressure from yourself because you don't have that kind of power. You just don't. No one has that kind of power. You're not going to show up and say something so profound that they're going to feel better. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's hey, I'm, I'm so sorry this happened. I've told that people that more I've told. And you know what, what? And I also feel uncomfortable speaking to this as if I'm a guru, because I don't have the comfort that comes with grief now. When right. someone else is in pain, I feel the same thing that someone felt when they talked to me. Grief cows us; it frightens us; mm-hmm. it um it flusters us; it it challenges our sense of boundaries. It just it, this is what grief does to us, you know. And we're all like that.
0: Yes, And Jason has. Does the shape of your grief feel different than it did a year ago? Yeah,
1: our yeah. I mean, I, I think that. You know, since this book came out and and Grieving Greta has become almost this thing I do communally rather than privately, um, I'm sure that will shift again. Mm-hmm. I'm in this moment when I've written a book with her picture on the cover and that people have access to it. Um, so that means that when I'm most often thinking about her and what losing her has meant to me and to our family, uh, and I'm thinking about it in that context. So um in my own life, I mean, and I think you would find this if you talk to lots of people who have grieved a child over time. Um that grief turns into something very um private and sort of more abstract mm. as time goes on. My my grief for my daughter has become a larger thing. Um it's more metaphysical now than when I think about because I, I, when I think about her as a two-year-old on this earth, um, that feels like a very long time ago to me because she has been gone for many more years now than she was physically alive. Yes. Um, and I think that we felt that sort of strain on our memories starting around the two-year mark when she had been dead as many years as she had been alive, where suddenly neither of us felt like recalling stories about her two-year life felt like the best way to honor her in our family. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is all very, you know, (laughs) this is all very mushy language because I'm talking about something so hard to talk about, uh, ineffable, you know, I mean, great. That's the thing about it. Mourning in absence, right? Like there's just, there's nothing there. Um, And for, for us, it's become. she's become more like a spirit in our lives than she has become a, a person we remember. And we talk to her more in that spirit. We talk to her more in that vein than we do. You know, I, I think of her as like an adult now. <laughs> when I think of her, I think of her as being somewhere very, very far away. And she's much, much older. And the version of her that's two years old is a, is a very, very long time ago. Yeah.
0: And we talked a lot before you published the book mm. about how you wanted how much you wanted to put out there and what message you wanted to send and you were very weary of people looking at this book as if it were like a disaster of the week kind of thing how 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 do you feel about all of that now
1: you know it's funny to hear my anxieties um said back to me because I I don't recall feeling that anymore. It's funny, I was so in the moment probably at the time. Um, I don't feel, yeah, I think I don't feel that way all about the way people have responded to the book. Anyone who has read it, I think doesn't feel that that's at all accurate, Um, you know. And and that's a
0: testament to your writing too, obviously.
1: Yeah, well, that's nice Um, and I, know. I, I think that oddly it's going to sort of linger in this way. I mean, I, I hate to say this, but I'm always receiving new notes from new people mm-hmm. who have lost children.
0: And, yeah. and you've talked about how, what a, a terrible club it is to be a member of because we as a culture don't really understand how to grieve for, for children.
1: I mean, there's two sides of that, right? We're very, we're very fortunate as a culture yes. that we, have, we haven't had to develop a code of ethics around grieving children because children don't die that often in our culture, you know, relatively speaking.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In a country and in a, in, a, in, a, in a rung of the society of the country where childhood mortality rights are, are so, so low, um, when a child does die, it turns the world upside down. For anyone who hears about it, um, and I've thought about that a lot too. Um, there are so many ways for me to sort of think about the accident and this is different from thinking about Greta or what her life meant, but the accident um, and what it meant for my life like what i what i what I felt like I learned um, and I think it's salient that I had never felt in danger before. I had never felt like I or my family was in danger before, you know? Um, What what insane dreamlike privilege to exist Mm -hmm. inside of.
0: Yes. Um,
1: And to walk around in and to be lulled by And to feel that shatter in such a decisive way was to reckon with all of these assumptions that had been rooted inside of me so deeply that I was unaware of every single one of them. They were hardwired. Yeah. Um, All the supposed to's I realized I lived in a whole world of supposed to's I never looked at directly and that I had just been equipped with. They had come with, I'm supposed to be safe. The world isn't. The world isn't supposed to be dangerous. I mean, just the list goes on and on. The things that people who aren't me don't get to think about most of the time. They, yeah, Um, and yeah. I mean, uh, my children are not supposed to be. And I saw some of that in the reaction to Greta's death. I mean, I don't think that's irrelevant, and it has helped me to process what has happened. in the world almost, although yes. I've used it. Maybe I should say I've used it more than it's helped me because it's something that, 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 that's evidence of how my mind works, right? Mm-hmm. I have used that, that realization as I processed how my perspective on the world has changed ever since Greta died, you know? Wow, I have felt unbelievably safe for so unbelievably long.
0: <laughs> Look at us now. Um, <laughs> right. Jason, You've been a writer for as long as I've known you and before. Um, t- tell me about writing as a reaction to Greta's death and yeah. if writing provided an outlet that you couldn't get anywhere else. And and also tell me about writing now.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I opened up a, de- a, a note on my phone. Um, I think three days after she died. And it was a very instinctive moment. Um, I didn't, because I was beside myself, I didn't sit and think I should really write some of this down. I groped for my phone and I started writing and that was very much the spirit of which I started recording my feelings and thoughts. It was inextricable from sort of my, uh, my grieving process. And it was all, I mean, and that sounds so anodyne, my grieving process. It was how I stayed alive. It was how I stayed alive from half hour to half hour, from hour to hour, from, from morning to evening, from day to day, from week to week. It was absolutely how I survived. Um, if I hadn't written everything I thought down, I would have probably died in some way. I mean, I, it's true. Um, I would have taken my own life. I would have, who knows what, I would have died. Um, it was a, so writing is a survival mechanism mm-hmm. for me. And it very much was. Um, in those moments. Um, I kind of fell on it in a way that felt like this visceral response. Um, I didn't think about sentences. I mean, in many ways, I what I was doing was recording the things I heard myself say because I wanted them to be down somewhere. I would be saying something to somebody or I'd be saying something to a therapist or I'd be saying something while I was crying to somebody and after I stopped crying or screaming or whatever it was, I would sit there completely still, and then open up my phone and voice dictate every single word of it that I could remember, or type it verbatim because I knew that it was something I needed uh, to have later. And a lot of that is verbatim in Once More, We Saw Stars. A lot of that stuff—I mean, I literally wailed some of that into my phone. Um,
0: and how know, do you how do you take what's essentially a diary and and turn it into a narrative, a book?
1: Well, you start to decide which story is yours and which story is the one you want to tell others, right? And that isn't to suggest that I was disingenuous. It's just that there are stuff yeah. that I knew was only for me, mm-hmm. that no one else needed to hear because no one else would care, right? I mean, and that was more like, there's a, different, there's a definite distinction in my mind that, and I started making it as I as I sensed that I was writing something beyond a journal, where some of this stuff was only for my processing and it was raw, usually despair, right? I mean, I, you have that, it builds up over time when you are grieving something and someone. Um, and you have to reckon with that despair every time, but does someone reading your story need to reckon with your despair every time you've encountered it? Do they need to circle back to this point or do they need to hear it so they know it exists and then go somewhere else with you? And so this thousands and thousands and thousands of words that were dumped off over the side. You know, for me, for someone else, for me, for yeah. someone else. Helpful to me, helpful to others, helpful to me, helpful to others. And, you know, and it's sort of like, that was the way in which I started realizing that, you know, the distinction between the book and whatever it was I was doing to survive, you know? And so, yeah, I, I wouldn't have decided that I wanted to write a memoir if I hadn't felt like there was some larger, more hopeful story that I was like struggling to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, if it has been a journal of my despair, it would have remained that. It would remain a journal of my despair. It would never have been seen by another human being, which I think a lot of people who lose children do. They write thousands and thousands of words and they get out all their despair Mm -hmm. and they put it away. And in many cases, they never read those words again as long as they (sighs) live. But um, for whatever reason, I had this need to tell this other story that went somewhere. I mean, and a lot of it had to do with the fact that I was scared of who I was going to be when I had another child. And I think that if not for... Stacey getting pregnant and Harrison being born, there would have also been no Once More We Saw Stars. I would never have felt the need to push this narrative inside of me to this point where um, a lot of the book was me explaining to myself how I was going to reenter the world. Um, Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. And writing will always be primal to me, I think. It will always feel that way.
0: When you were just writing about music, it was was clear that writing was primal to you and in the book you talked about being a music writer and and not finding that much comfort in music which which felt so devastating to me at the time mm-hmm. has has that changed or yeah
1: yeah for sure and um i i think that i, I should probably say that there was music that did help me mm-hmm. um, I think what I, what, what I also realized was that I used music a lot to hide and disconnect a lot, which I would not have been as aware of um, in another state, you know? I mean, am I putting my headphones in because I want to connect to music, because I want to disconnect from my environment, right? That's a decision I realized I was making. It had more to do with that. I mean, I, was, I, there were, I went to a few concerts early on that were super profound to me, mm-hmm. um, and some of those made their way into the book. Yes. Um, But my day job, which was listening to albums, you know, spending hours in my headphones, that began to feel like a a neighborhood I didn't want to linger in. I didn't want to spend eight hours in my head quietly, you know, just pumping music in and not talking to other people. That felt like a perverse reaction to what had happened to me. And so it was more about behavior of my Mm. own that I felt like um, wasn't suiting, wasn't suiting me. Um, And yeah, I mean, music remains, you know, I mean, it's so vital to me. and it has been. I mean, I've written a little bit about this, too, but um, yeah. I became so connected to some artists through, like, my understanding of what happened to Greta and Harrison, like, the music of John Prime, which I've written a little bit yes. about. Like, I mean, his oh, music. I thought
0: be- of you when he died.
1: Yeah, I know. I got a lot of notes from people. It was very sweet and sad, as if he were a member of my family. Um, yeah, um, he succumbed to covid he had not been healthy for a number of years. Um, but I had, I, had, uh, I had written something about how um, a song of his called Everything Is Cool had sort of played this instrumental role in delivering Greta to the world. Um, as in, it was playing while Stacy was literally laboring with Greta. Um, and then when Greta died, it played at the service. And it's this beautiful song about being elsewhere and untouchable. And so I, I always resonated with me and um, he has so many songs that sort of touch on that liminality between life and death. And so, I mean, if not for his music, I don't think I would have the same understanding of Harrison and Greta's life. I mean, what else can I say about it? You know? Hmm. Um, so I, I, I music will, you know, music and writing are the only two ways that I really process my reality It remains yes. to be a base. Yeah.
0: And, and Jason, I, because I'm so, I'm so excited about this you um you're writing fiction now
1: i am yeah working on a novel as we speak
0: G- give me like a little bit of an update i don't want to make you worry sure. too much but it's
1: coming it's coming along um it's about loss still and grief mm-hmm. but it's a bit more figurative it's uh it's got a speculative side to it um I- i've been I, so uh, we were you asked me in the beginning that to give some, uh, reading recommendations, yes. things that I'm reading. And, um, I can say that like some books that have meant a lot to me recently, um, were, uh, one of them is the memory police by Yoko. Oh, yeah. um, and the sense of loss in that book, um, which is about this fantastical Island where objects keep disappearing from the cultural memory, right? They don't disappear. Literally. They're still there, mm-hmm. but no one remembers what they are, what their mm-hmm. context is or why they exist so they become effectively meaningless. Um, It's this beautiful story and it can be read so many ways about like the way a culture starves itself, about, um, it could be read about climate change, about state surveillance. There's so many ways you could read that metaphor, but to me it was just about, uh, it was this feeling of loss transfigured into a sort of a fable. And I would say that what I'm writing is trying to do some of that too. Um, and okay. I don't want to say more than that about it yet. You know, cause it's still so uncooked, but I have been working on it now for a solid two years.
0: Well, I am ready whenever you are. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Hopefully I'll be ready sooner rather than later. Novel writing is slow business. I have learned that. Yes. Painfully yeah. firsthand. Yeah.
0: Has your productivity changed having, being fully at home now?
1: Um, I'm very lucky now. Um, in that, um, In the beginning, I mean, for the first two months of the pandemic, I just didn't write um, or really work. I had to get up at, you know, five in the morning and then work after Harrison was asleep. Um, Mm -hmm. The nature of the schedule that my wife and I share is such that my wife works 10 hour shifts when she works. She's a a lactation consultant at at a hospital. Um, So she works, nurses hours. And so the days when I was in charge of Harrison with no school, I was in charge of Harrison from so the minute he woke up to the minute he went to bed. Right. And that was the case three or four days a week. And the other days, Stacy was home and, you know, both of us was either being either plunged into work or plunged into childcare. I mean, we were not, we were not unique in that circumstance. We So many of our neighbors and friends and everyone we know who had kids yes, was sort of dealing with the same thing. Um, and in the beginning, I really didn't I couldn't write anything i mean it was it was a visceral uh living out of this very fundamental room of one's own idea right i mean I, <laughs> I, and I did think about not to be glib, but I thought a little bit about this idea right that when one is consumed by domestic labor, one simply cannot sit and think anywhere else, right? Yes. And it was a very vivid demonstration of how that plays out in life. <laughs>
0: um,
1: I wrote in the back of our Volkswagen, which I would park in other neighborhoods so as to be looking at a different part of Brooklyn while still not being in a place. <laughs> I wrote prob- I wrote a, I wrote a album reviews and features that went live in, in the month of March. I wrote like, you know, 10, 20 pages of, of my fiction in the backseat of my own car, which was very... Grim at the time. Um, and then things changed a little. One, I got access to some people's workspaces that have been deserted. And two, and this is where we are very different than a lot of our friends and family who are struggling with the same weight because my wife is a healthcare worker, she has allotted exceptions for childcare. And so now we are wow. allowed to use some. And that has shifted the burden. Immensely. I'm sitting here talking to you in an, em- <laughs> in an empty apartment, and you're not also dealing with me dealing with my son at the same time. You know, I mean, it can't be overstated. The, the, it cannot be overstated.
0: And and certainly, other writers I've spoken to have had children clinging to them. And
1: out of there, yeah. I mean, I've become very used to that. Like the child <laughs> wandering onto the interview. Yeah, it's, it's a trope of COVID coverage, right? It you sure know?
0: Is. <laughs> Jason, thank you for doing this with me again.
1: Do it a third time. Let's
0: see. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.